everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Beth Malden, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jenny Mitchell and Stefan Endo about their new book, A Bite-Sized History of France, Gastronomic Tales of Revolution, War, and Enlightenment. Let me start by saying thank you all so much for being here today. Oh, thank you. We're delighted to be here. Thank you very much. So why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to collaborate on this book. Yes, we do get quite a few comments about the fact that we're a husband and wife team writing this book, and people sometimes ask us how our marriage survived the writing of this book, but uh, it did, and actually we had a lot of fun writing it together, so it was a a big uh, marital success. Uh, We actually came up with the idea for the book when, shortly after we moved to France. Uh, Before that, we had been living in London, that's where we met, and where we got married and had our son Jules, and when Jules was about a year old, we decided to move back to Stéphane's hometown, which is Nantes. It's a very old city near the west coast of France at the end of the Loire Valley. And this is a really wonderful experience for me uh, because I quickly discovered that Nantes has this incredible local food scene. It has all this great seafood from the Atlantic. You have all the great wines and cheeses of the Loire Valley. You have all the Breton specialties like galette and cider. So it was this whole new world for me to explore. Whereas for Stefan, what was so exciting for him was that he was back in France and he could get his favorite cheeses from all over France. He at that time was a a cheesemonger, so this was a big deal for him. Uh, But we ended up having a bit of a a first real cross-cultural problem in our marriage because it turned out that Stefan's favorite French cheeses are all the worst to me French cheeses. It's all the really stinky French cheeses. So it's things like croissants and roll and really stinky camembert. And Stefan just thought these cheeses were so delightful. And to me, it smelled like something had died in the fridge. That was a tragic uh, moment, actually, in a marriage for me. But uh, we did manage to get over it eventually um because you know i i overreacted at first i said uh you cannot bring these cheeses in the flat and uh so stefan was a bit distraught and but he was very clever and he decided that the best way around this was not to argue with me about it directly but to just start telling me stories about all these cheeses because he knows i love history and i love france and he thought he would win me over this way it was very clever so he just started um telling me all these stories about these cheeses. And that's how I learned that some of these horrible cheeses were a thousand years old. They had been created by medieval monks who were trying to get around their strict religious diets by inventing really interesting cheeses. And Stefan told me that, you know, these cheeses, they, they taste of their homeland because they're made with the milk of cows and sheep and goats that graze in this very small area. And so when you eat these cheeses, you're consuming part of France itself. So this is all very romantic, and it really won me over, and I let him bring these cheeses into our house. In moderation, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) And I did not eat them myself yet. Uh, So that was, you know, a big victory for the cheeses. And I think Stefan thought, well, that's that, that's over. But then I just started asking him questions about everything we ate, because what I discovered was that in France... Every food and wine has a story. It's, there's a story about how it was created, about the land and the people that produce it, and often about important events and people associated with it. And so we just started collecting all these stories. And after a while, we realized that if you could put all these stories in chronological order, you could actually tell an entire history of, of France. And so that's really what our book is. It's a history of France as told through its foods and wines. First of all, let me just tell you, it's, it is my dream to marry a French cheesemonger. So I, you <laughs> are so lucky. I am. I admit, I am. <laughs> and so I imagine that the research for this book was a lot of fun. Um, could you talk about some of the places that you got to visit? Oh, lots of places, huh? But uh, we, yeah. we did manage to travel quite a bit. And uh, and, we, and we really tried to, we wanted to convey in the book, we didn't want to just talk about the food in a very, you know, in a vacuum. We wanted to convey, uh, you know, where these foods come from and, and who produces them and, and their long traditions associated with them. You know, this is very, it's one of the things that's so unique about French gastronomy is that it's really tightly linked to 
um, to the people in, in the land that produce it. So uh, we did travel quite a bit. And in fact, one of the most common feedbacks we get on the book is that it makes people want to travel to France and see all these places and eat all these foods. And we were actually quite surprised to learn that um, Smithsonian Magazine actually named our book one of its top 10 travel books for last year. Oh, and wow. Congratulations. Thank you. It was a real shock because, you know, we had tried to write a history book and we kind of accidentally also wrote a travel book. So, uh, and that's very French, I think. You can't really separate the, the history from the from the locales. Um, so personally, my favorite place we went to was probably Avignon. In, uh, in Provence, uh, because we have a chapter on the Avignon papacy and the creation of Chateauneuf du Cap. And so, um, you know, Avignon is just this beautiful old city. It has this, you know, enormous papal palace from the 14th century, just towering over the town. Uh, but it also has all the wonderful foods of Provence uh, and the splendid food market. So that to me was probably the purest combination of food and history that, wow. that I really enjoyed. We were actually really lucky also when we were there, we were like having this view of the palace just from a hotel and we were like five minutes away from an amazing market. So it was a really, really quite a, quite a, fun, a fun time. And uh, yeah, it was fun doing research there actually. It was like more like, oh, we really on holidays. So yeah. That was quite, it was quite nice. Actually, most of the places we went to were a bit like that. I think uh, I, I personally really enjoyed going to Lyon, for example, which... Uh, which a lot of people would describe as the French gastronomic capital. It has all this. We were actually there as well, staying like really next door to the main uh, market, which has some amazing cheesemongers there. And I was really, really happy to see the cheesemongers there, see all the cheese they had on available. And you always have the kind of crossroads of a lot of various um, big gastronomical places in France. It's next to the Auvergne, to the Rhone Valley, to the, to the Alps, and to Burgundy. So it has all these influences of various foods coming in. And uh, it also has some amazing restaurants like called Bouchon, which are very popular restaurants, which uh, which have uh, which have uh, found like myriads of ways to serve like off cuts for meat and uh, things which we don't really think normally of eating, uh, like uh, beef tongs or things like that. You know, which which we normally don't think of cooking, but like it's very traditional there to use every part of the animal. So that was quite. Quite interesting for me also to visit Lyon. I would say that was more interesting for Stefan than for me because my squeamishness uh, of French food extends to things like pig cheeks and things like this. <laughs> but no, I mean, Lyon is, is a wonderful food city. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, as I wrote in my email to you, when I was trying to come up with the topics that I wanted us to discuss, it was like a Sophie's choice mm-hmm. for me because. Every single chapter in this book is fascinating and interesting and important, Um, but I pared it down to a few things um, to talk about. So let's start with cheese, um, because that is hands down my favorite thing to eat when I go to France. And Charles de Gaulle said, how can anyone govern a nation that has 246 varieties of cheese? And there, there are actually many, many more than that. And Camembert is one of the best-known varieties in the world. And out of all the cheeses made in France, how did Camembert become so famous? Well, this was actually one of the most interesting things we discovered doing our research. Because, as you say, Camembert, it's an iconic symbol of France. It's known throughout the world. And so it's the kind of food that you would assume has been very popular in France for, you know, hundreds of years, like so many other French foods. And instead, we discovered when we started looking into it that before World War I, most people in France had never heard of Camembert. It was just a regional cheese. It's made in Normandy, and so it had a good following in Normandy and in Paris to a certain extent. But it was not really known at all in the rest of the country. And it was really the experience of World War I and the experience of the soldiers in the trenches that led to it becoming this kind of national cheese of France. Well, yeah, because before, uh, like when World War One started, obviously the French army wanted to feed its soldiers, and being France, they also thought like, well, we're going to feed them with cheese. So at the at the at the start of the of the war, they they had uh, these big contracts where they were buying lots of Gruyere type cheese and Cantal type cheese, so more like other cheeses, Morton cheeses, which keep for a long time, and which makes much more sense maybe to feed like a, a big army. But as the war uh, went on and on and on, and uh, as the well, misery of the war went on and on, 
like they really started to having problems also supplying enough cheese just by those kind of sources. So they look for other sources as well. And the camembert producers uh, were actually very delighted when, in, uh, when by the end of the war, they were able to get like huge contracts with the with the French army to supply cheese um, to the to the to the to the produce to the soldiers of uh, in the trenches, and um, so they actually had this contract for like supplying so much cheese that they actually could never really produce enough. They were supposed to supply more than a million cheese per month. They never managed to supply this much. But uh, what it meant was that uh, most uh, French soldiers on the trenches were getting now Camembert as part of their daily ration. And they really started to really appreciate uh, this particular cheese, uh, eating it with bread and wine, like uh, you should probably do still today. Okay. Uh, and it, it, the very earthy flavor of a Camembert maybe just reminded them of the country they were trying to defend, of the earth of their home place. And um, after the war, when they came back home, they started demanding Camembert from their local cheesemongers. And, uh, and suddenly, like uh, Camembert was being asked all over France, and um, what should have been a blessing actually for Camembert producers became also in a way a curse because now not only did people ask for Camembert all over France, but people also started producing Camembert all over France and thereby undermining also the uh, normally producers of Camembert. And that's really how it became this this national cheese of France uh, because as we talked about in the book, World War One touched you know every every corner of France. You know, it was something like eight million men were mobilized for it. Over a million men lost their lives and it was a, a total war for the country and so all of the kind of habits and traditions that were born in the trenches on the front lines were transferred back to the rest of the country because of such a totalizing experience and you write that that this should have been a gold mine for the makers of camembert but it wasn't what happened well, uh, as, uh, as I said, like it's it's basically they really thought like, oh well, now we're going to be able to have this big market which is now open to us. We're going to be able to sell Camembert all over France now. Now that we now that we hooked people basically on Camembert, we, we can sell it all over the place. But unfortunately, uh, other uh, cheesemakers very quickly realized, oh hold on, we can make Camembert too. We can call it Camembert, and the name Camembert was never protected. There was never anything which said like, oh Camembert can only be made in Normandy. So very quickly after that, they tried to make the French government protect the name of Camembert and say, like, well, only cheese made in Normandy around the village of Camembert can be called Camembert. But by that stage, it was already made all over France, and the French government said, no, it's actually now a generic name, and everybody can call the cheese Camembert if they want to. Uh, and that's also true to this day. People in Japan and the U.S. can make cheese and call it Camembert, and, and this can actually make cheese which has nothing to do with the real Camembert. And it still can be sold as Camembert. So, in a way, they, they were a victim of their own success because, like, this suddenly became so popular that that where the original product, the original producers were completely undermined and undercut. And and uh, to this day, it's actually still uh, there's still some movement in in the in the protection of the cheese. So there's uh, the cheese Camembert de Normandie, which is protected, the name in France with an AOP, which is an Appellation d'origine protégée, which some cheese have a protected name, just like champagne, for example, or like in other products, which is probably more. And uh, but it's only the Camembert de Normandie which is protected. But you can do Camembert and call it Camembert. It can be made in wherever. Right. Well, you end this chapter with a little anecdote about Marie Arel, who, according to legend, invented Camembert in 1791. But that was not necessarily true because there are accounts of Camembert that predate Marie Arel. But could you talk a little bit about, about that anecdote with her statue that was erected in her town? Okay, yes. Uh, so, yes, there's the story of Marie Arel, which, like, there's this legend. And actually, there's a common theme throughout the book as well, is that there's so many legends, and when you start looking into them, you realize, well, actually, they're really not true. They're, they're like, completely, they're somehow invented, or it's a good marketing plot. You know, the, the descendant of Marie Arel became big, Camembert producers. So it's not really surprising that the legend around Marie Arel kind of emerged, being her the inventor of it, because the descendants of Marie Arel became like this big Camembert producers. So, you know, that's, that's, that's maybe something to do with the, the legend there. Uh, the story about the, um, the statue is, uh, is actually a French-American story there, really. And uh, after World War I, uh, the story goes that an American doctor 
came to town of Dumoutier uh, and Camembert, so like around, around Camembert, and uh, asked to see like a shrine to Marie Arel because he had like big stomach problems, stomach upsets, and he started eating Camembert and he claimed that Camembert actually cured him. So he came there to to pay his homage to Marie Arel. And then he realized there's actually nothing that you celebrate, Marie There's no statue, no nothing. And he told the people of the town, well, you should really build a statue. And he told them, you know what? I'm going to give you $10 and I'm going to start a subscription so that people build a statue here. And so that people can come and visit the birthplace of Camembert. And uh, the locals thought, oh, actually, that's a great idea. And so they assembled some money, built like a first statue. And uh, the statue actually managed to be in uh, Dumoutier until... The Second World War, where actually the town was then bombed uh, by the Allies when they tried to liberate uh, Normandy. And so the statue got his head cut off. You can actually still see the statue with his head cut off over there. Um, and then what happened is uh, that um, uh, an American uh, producer of cheese uh, decided that, well, you know what, uh, Americans destroyed it. We're going we're gonna to give you a new statue. So we're going to raise some money and give you a new statue. The only problem is that that uh, factory, uh, this uh, factory who wanted to give uh, the statue to to the to the Normans, uh, was producing camembert, and what they wanted to put underneath the statue was that this statue is donated by the camembert producers of um, Borden. I can't remember the exact phrasing. It was something like the the producers, the the Borden Dairy Company of Ohio. Uh, the proud makers of American camembert have yeah. donated the statue. So, so it offended people in Normandy. They were like, well, hold on, camembert is from our place. So we're not going to have a, a statue in our town which says, like, people in America produce camembert, especially at that time when uh, the Americans had actually just banned uh, Normandy camembert to be shipped to the U.S. because it's raw milk cheese. And they had just decided, the FDA had just decided, well, no, we don't want raw milk cheese anymore to go to America. So uh, the Normans had already kind of a bit of a, uh, were like already kind of a bit annoyed with uh, the Americans for not wanting to buy the cheese anymore. But if on top of it, in their own town, they would have a sign saying like, well, in America, we produce our own camembert that, that didn't go down well. So they found this compromise where on the statue, it was then written, the statue is donated by 400 people making cheese in Ohio. Something like that, yeah. So, uh, yes. But it was, it was a lot of, it was a way, in a way, it was kind of a, a taste of what was going on in this time period, right after the Second World War. I mean, it was one example of a lot of kind of episodes of friction between France and the United States um, that kind of carried over into gastronomy. And this idea of, you know, French cheese is not being allowed in was, you know, a kind of uh, symbolic of like this this greater political and economic friction that was happening. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and jump into that because um, you touch on the contentious relationship between France and the United States and how that tension spills over into food. For example, during World War II, most French people were very happy to see American soldiers handing out food and American cigarettes after they landed in Normandy because they had been deprived of of these things for so long. Um, But that excitement and goodwill did not last very long. What happened? Well, as you say, it, this should have been, and, and it was for a time, the kind of apex of Franco-American relations. You know, the American, the Allied soldiers, including many Americans, arrived in France. They liberated France. They were greeted as heroes. You know, it's kind of for the, a template of liberation that we still kind of expect today. You know, this is what liberation looks like. It's the American soldiers driving through Normandy and into Paris and, you know, with waving crowds and everybody loves them. Um, but this dissipated surprisingly quickly. Um, and part of it was the simple fact of you had, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans in France, and there was bound to be some local fiction, especially when people did not speak the same language. There were a lot of cultural differences. Uh, one of the things we talk about in the book was that we found this, this really remarkable little book called 112 Gripes About the French that was produced in the United States and given to uh, American servicemen who were serving in France after the liberation. And it was just this list of 112 complaints that 
were being heard a lot uh, from American soldiers about the French people, uh, you know, that they seemed very arrogant and they weren't very friendly and, you know, they ate too much garlic and, you know, what is their problem? And it was, the book is basically trying to refute all these complaints and explain how horrible the occupation was and how much people suffered and how great French civilization is and we should respect it and, and these kinds of things. So it's a symbol of how there is this kind of cultural clash at an individual level, but there's also this kind of geopolitical friction because quite quickly after the war, France became a real battleground between the forces of capitalism and the forces of socialism and and communism. Um, You know, the Cold War was gearing up and in France, the Communist Party was actually a very popular party. It was the largest party in the National Assembly. France was also a very old power. It's a very proud nation. And so the idea that they were liberated by this young, upstart American country, that now the Americans were coming in and just kind of taking over everything and um, becoming very, you know, the the new hegemon of the world, um, you know, really dented French pride and created a lot of issues. And so one of the things we talk about in the book was the battle over Coca-Cola. You know, it was during World War II that Coca-Cola became this, you know, global you know, powerhouse um, and a very political one. I mean, Coca-Cola was a very overtly political company. They were anti-communist and they were for freedom and democracy and all of this. And after the war, they really wanted to, um, they aggressively tried to enter the French market and start making Coca-Cola in France. And this generated a huge amount of resistance, uh, both for political reasons, by uh, especially communists and the French left, who actually referred to this as a potential coca colonization, feeling that coke was a kind of Trojan horse for a broader American imperialism. Um, but they joined forces with, um, you know, the traditional French beverage producers, people who made wine and juice and mineral water, who didn't like the idea of this competition and saw Coke as a kind of poison, this kind of industrial poisonous drink. Uh, And so they were not successful in keeping Coca-Cola out of France forever. Um, But it's true that even today, Coca-Cola is is not as popular in France as it is in most other parts of of Europe and the world. Uh, And so this was just an example of how so quickly after the Second World War, um, Franco-American relations just engendered loads of friction um, because of a changing global geopolitical context. Yeah, there was a great quote from the chairman of the board of Coca-Cola, and he said, Coca-Cola was not injurious to the health of American soldiers who liberated France from the Nazis so that the communist deputies could be in session today. That's such a great quote. Yes. And it, it sounds very modern, doesn't it? Because it's the kind of thing you still hear today. Yes. When you hear, you know, if anyone in Europe is upset about something in, in the United States, you know, some people will say things like, oh, well, if it wasn't for us, you'd all be speaking German. And, you know, I mean, like to this day, you know, people are still saying things like this. So, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So Coca-Cola was not as popular in France as it was in other countries, but um, a lot of people are surprised to learn that France is the second biggest overseas market for American fast food. For McDonald's, basically, yes, 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 uh, yes uh, McDonald's is, is actually very popular in France, and I think I think also like um, McDonald's is using very clever marketing in France. First of all, like the, they are trying to make it sound more local. I mean, you have like. You had this moment where, like, uh, for example, as a cheesemonger, I was quite shocked to discover, like, okay, they do uh, burgers with Conte cheese or with Roquefort cheese or with uh, whatever. You had different type of French cheeses which they use for, for their burgers sometimes. Did you, like, uh, they look, some of them look more like cafes maybe than a typical kind of um, fast food uh, joint. So they make it kind of more uh, local. But it's true that French people have, I mean, some French people have an affection for McDonald's, which they which is actually called McDo. Uh, very affectionately somehow um, and 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 in a way it's it's part of also a dynamic which we try and explain in our book it's it's like you you have this romanticized idea about France where like everybody eats this wonderful food they all go to the market they all buy like fresh produce but then there's also the reality where like for most people that's for a lot of people that's not the case and for a lot of people you may also go to the market but you may also eat McDonald's and it's not necessarily contradictory it's it's like there's different dynamics and and it's uh yes and i think i think even these days it's like burger is, is a very hipster meal i think in in Nantes, there were like uh, when we when we lived there there were like so many burger places opening yeah. and like some of them extremely fancy and some of them more like uh, classical fast food places we also 
talk about uh, quite a bit in the book about this enduring theme of the gulf between the kind of uh, food habits of the of the upper classes of the elite and of kind of the ordinary people of France. And this is something you see going all the way back to Roman times. And as Stefan said, part of de-romanticizing France and French cuisine and French society is also recognizing that the picture that's often presented of France uh, and French cuisine abroad um, is is more, it, it can be more of a elite level, upper class image. And whereas, you know, your average person in France will shop at a, you know, enormous supermarket that has aisles of junk food and they'll go to McDonald's and these are just normal things. Um, and they may still also indulge in the habits of what may be seen as more upper class things, but uh, but this is kind of an enduring theme that when you're looking at how French people eat, it's really important to go beyond just the, you know, the expensive restaurants and the Michelin-starred restaurants and the kind of habits of the upper classes. Well, the, the French people romanticize their own food as well, and their own That's culture as well. So it, it's it's like we, I think as French people, we reinforce that idea as well, that like, you know, we, we're very proud of our food and we're very proud of our things. And even if we don't always get perfect thing we know that it can be eaten so uh it's 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 part of our, of our imagery which is reinforced also by french people and and uh and as i said like it's, it's not contradictory for for younger for french people actually not even younger but you eat at mcdonald one day and the next day you eat you eat a very elaborate uh meal which uh which is about all the fresh ingredients at the market about the fresh fish at the market and things like that and it's not contradictory in some ways and it's, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. My next question is also related to um, the exchange between France and the United States. And you said that McDonald's expanded into France in the 1970s. Um, and around the same time, France was exporting a food trend to the United States, which was Nouvelle Cuisine. Um, I didn't realize that the roots of Nouvelle Cuisine were in May 68, and that's fascinating. Could you talk about that? Like, what was the significance of May 68 in French society, and how does Nouvelle Cuisine emerge from that tumultuous period? Well, this is a subject that uh, it's it's very complicated, and I have to say, as a non-French person, um, I hesitate to try to <laughs> explain it in too much detail, but I think that in very broad strokes, um, the idea is that the kind of great social uprising of the 1968, of the late 60s in general, which was a response to, response especially from younger people and from people on the left to what they saw as an increasingly authoritarian and repressive French government uh, in response to what they saw as, you know, imperialist aggression abroad, especially the war in Vietnam at that time. Um, and the response was a series of strikes and student protests and uh, really a bit of chaos in the French capital in different cities that was eventually kind of subdued um, by series of compromises from the French government. But it's seen as this really, I mean, similar to the way in the United States that the late 60s are seen as this real turning point in social attitudes. Uh, in France, even today, you still see, I mean, May 1968 is still this, this huge force in French society. And it's seen as a turning point where, you know, the where very strong anti-establishment forces were able to become more dominant in society. And it was a bit of a triumph over the forces, the old forces of conservative France. I, I think uh, 1968, and it still resonates in, in the French mind, it, it, it really taught people how to, it was a moment where people challenged cons the, the traditional way of doing things. Yeah. And in a way, I think like Nouvelle Cuisine is a bit that as well is also challenging the all traditional sauces, the heavy meals and the heavy things and re regenerating like food, making it in another way, trying to change things. And I think it's not too surprising that that those two events happen more or less at the same time or where it's it's yes it's it's uh, it's all part of a of a bigger cultural trend and it's interesting because i think what's interesting in the context of our book is that what you see with nouvelle cuisine is that it's it kind of harkens back to an earlier change in french gastronomy because what had happened um at the turn of the 20th century was that uh french chefs especially uh the famous escoffier had really brought in a very kind of 
opulent French cuisine. It was a bit, you know, heavy, there were lots of sauces, it was very elaborate, um, and it became very famous. But of course, you know, 60 years later, it had become also very stagnant, and it had really held down innovation. And Nouvelle Cuisine was pushing back against that and saying, we can be innovative and we want to go back to using, you know, local foods, having foods taste more natural, um, using, you know, more fresh herbs instead of these heavy creams and all of that. And what's interesting is that that's very reminiscent of what happened after the French Revolution, where the cuisine of the Ancien Regime, which was very opulent and decadent, was kind of swept aside. And um, what had happened throughout the course of the Enlightenment, and then increasingly so after the Revolution, was the sense of, well, food should taste as it is, and it should be more, there's a much more uh, natural sensibility in French gastronomy. And so I think that's one of the benefits of doing this kind of long story of France, as we do in the book, because you see that even things that are very radical when they happen in our recent past are part of this kind of cycle of change where foods, you know, become very fancy and decadent, and then there's a kind of reaction against that, but then that kind of cycle comes back and Yes, I think the cycle of like uh, going to like very rich foods and then wanting to go back to something more natural happen a lot of times. Actually. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you bring up the French Revolution because um, you point out in your book that food played a big part in the revolution. For example, coffee, uh, cafes, restaurants. Um, first, how was coffee introduced to France? And then how did cafe culture help spark the revolution? Well, coffee came into France uh, from the Middle East uh, through Turkish importers who brought it in first to the south of France, I think through Marseille. Um, and it did not really catch on in France at first, not as much as it did in, in places like London and England. Um, it, was, it was very slow to become popular in France. Um, the Turkish, uh, the Ottoman ambassador to Paris played a big role in making it more popular among amongst nobility, but it was really kind of a long, slow process. But coffee was incredibly important for the creation of the cafe. Uh, the first cafes were coffee houses in Paris. And those cafes also took a while to catch on. But by the late 17th century um, and throughout the 18th century, you started seeing cafes um, first by the dozens and then by the hundreds all over France. And the cafes in Paris played a really important role in uh, kind of helping to generate and sustain the ideas that would eventually shape the French Revolution uh, because the, the cafes kind of were born at the same time of the French Enlightenment, which is when you had all these really seminal ideas behind the revolution about, you know, liberty and equality and secularism, uh, Rousseau's social contract, the writings of Voltaire, you know, all of this is kind of stirring in this great, you know, zeitgeist in Paris. And a lot of it is taking place in the cafes, which turn out to be this great, you know, kind of over-caffeinated place to, to debate and agitate and, and plot. Um, and so not only the great Enlightenment thinkers, but many of the leading revolutionary figures closer to the time of 1789 uh, were great patrons of the cafes. And so what we try to point out in the book is that these were not just places where you could have some coffee or a bit of food. They were a real social institution. And they kind of created this very important social space where all of the you know, these very radical ideas that led to the French Revolution could could really uh, you know foment and and become so so impactful. Yeah, it's it's not surprising, for example, that uh, the, for the during the taking of the Bastille two days before one of the big speeches, which roused people to 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 rise against against the, the nation and finally uh, take the Bastille, happened in the Café de Foix with Camille de Moulin. This big rousing speech, and like you have all these pictures showing him like doing this speech and like uh, and like rousing the Parisian mass and like uh, telling them to to take arms and and everything. And and yes, it's it's uh, it's cafes were just such an important part. One of the other big uh, French revolutionary Danton married the daughter of a of a, of a coffee owner of the coffee place he used to hang out all the time. <laughs> it's uh, it, it was just like it, it was the place to to meet and 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 share ideas and like and like it was a huge political spaces and even much later it said that uh marx met engels in a paris cafe uh, a few years before the communist manifesto was released and so they came to have a very enduring uh, kind of role in french society as places for all kinds of people to gather and just debate the issues of the day and, and be as radical as, as they wanted to be 
So another aspect of the French Revolution in terms of just upending uh, the social order, the radical leaders created a new calendar that was based in part in agriculture. And there was one day that owns Vendemiaire that was dedicated to the potato. And the French, I love this story, the French love of this vegetable um, can be attributed to the efforts of a single person, um, Antoine Augustin Parmentier. Can you talk about his campaign to introduce potatoes into French culture? This is actually, I have to say, one of our favorite stories that we learned about from researching the book, uh, because we had no idea. The potato is so popular in France today um, that it's really shocking to learn that that is a relatively recent phenomenon, and that before the French Revolution, nobody in France really ate potatoes. Uh, they were, you know, an import from the Americas that had never really caught on. Uh, some people thought they were poisonous. Um, some people thought they caused leprosy. They weren't mentioned in the Bible, which made them very suspicious. You know, they were very bland anyway, and so they were mostly just used as animal feed. And once you feed them to animals, you know, people don't really want to eat it anymore. So, um, but the potato had become popular in other parts of Europe, including Prussia, uh, where obviously potatoes are still very popular today here in Germany. Um, and so Parmentier comes into this story because he's a French uh, pharmacist who was taken prisoner during a uh, war between France and Prussia. And he spent a lot of time as a prisoner in Prussia being forced to subsist on a diet of potatoes. And he was really shocked after this that Actually, it didn't kill him, and he was actually in quite good health. And so he became convinced that perhaps the potato was the answer to a really enduring problem in France for centuries, which was the problem of famine and food scarcity. Because you have to remember, at this time, you didn't have the kinds of modern industrialized food production that you have today. There was not the same capacity to, to store food and to keep food for a long time. And so any bad harvest or any problem in the countryside meant a lot of people would starve to death. And what happened in the 1800s was that, in the 1700s, sorry, was that as part of this broader move of the Enlightenment and the belief that we should be able to solve human problems through science, that we should be able to come up with some solutions to this problem. And Parmentier became uh, one of the foremost leaders of this movement in the kind of moral quest to solve this problem of famine and food scarcity. So the potatoes seemed like the answer to his prayers. He just needed to get French people to eat potatoes, which were very easy to grow, were very cheap, and they could solve this whole problem of food scarcity. But he, of course, he ran up against French public opinion, which is that potatoes are poisonous, um, bland, horrible, disgusting animal feed. And so he embarked on this long campaign, uh, that's why we call him the potato propagandist, where he just went about trying to convince French people that they were wrong and the potatoes are great. And he figured out quite quickly that the way to do it was to get uh, the elite and the nobility to appreciate potatoes, because this is how food seemed to catch on is that you know the wealthier classes would adopt them and then they would just become more popular throughout society in general. So he hosted these elaborate potato dinners for the nobility where every dish was made out of potatoes. He even convinced the king and the queen at a royal banquet to put potato flowers and in their jacket and um, but he really didn't make any headway before the revolution. After the revolution however the new regime realized that food scarcity had been such a huge of the revolution to begin with. And now they had the same problem, which is that they needed to keep the people fed or else they were also going to be tossed out of power. And so they turned to the potato and realized this is really an ideal revolutionary food. It's very new at this time of great social invention. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to grow. It's very democratic. It's very humble, unlike all the you know, old royalist food. And so they really pushed uh, the production of potatoes upon the country. And potatoes finally got their recognition and they actually did become quite popular yeah. in France. And, and during a time, during the French Revolution, you had potatoes growing in the Palais du Luxembourg, in the, in the gardens of the Luxembourg or the Tuileries. And like uh, people started to grow potatoes everywhere because it was like, it was actually this very handy food, especially in terms of food scarcity. And uh, yes, yeah, so that was a, that was a very, very interesting thing. And uh, Parmentier is actually still, uh, to this day, known in France mainly because of uh, a dish called Ashi Parmentier, which is like a, a kind of shepherd's pie, really, <laughs> uh, cottage pie. And uh, so his name his name lives on. And actually, quite funny enough, a lot of people in France, if you ask them who Parmentier is, 
it was say he's the inventor of potato. <laughs> Which, uh, <laughs> he is not that, but he's like the big propagandist of potato in France. And uh, that's, uh, that's yeah. Really and if you go to Pere Lachaise Cemetery today, you can see where people still they leave potatoes on his grave. Um, and there's also a statue of him handing out potatoes at the uh, Parmentier Metro stop in Paris. I have to say, I've, I've been to that, to that Metro stop and you cannot believe it when you see it. I mean, the entire station is just potatoes everywhere. Like, along the station walls, so while you're waiting for your train, there's like, you know, this really long explanation of the potatoes and where they come from and how they're grown and everything else. And that's the centerpiece of it is this, wonderful enormous statue of parmentier you know the noble parmentier handing a potato to a peasant who seems very grateful to have this potato <laughs> and it's just you cannot imagine anything really like it in a lot of other countries it's just it's one of the most french things i think i've ever seen yes i'm trying to imagine that i live in atlanta i'm trying to imagine that in a, a, a subway stop here it just it does not work this is why i love france um, but, but while we're talking about potatoes, we have to talk about French fries. It, like many origin stories, the details are a little fuzzy. But what are some of the, the narratives of where we get French fries? Well, there's, there's uh, different narratives, actually. And I think, I think uh, one of the main ones is that uh, it's the Belgians who invented French fries. And I mean, one of the, there's different stories, but one story is that uh, they used to fry fish from the river and at one point the rivers in Belgium were frozen for like such a long time that they started frying potatoes in little pieces made to look like fish instead of uh, frying their fish and this was like apparently one story how French fries uh, started to begin. Uh, the reason why in America they call French fries is, is apparently that uh, some American soldiers I think in the Second World War or the First World War when at one point they were uh, first encountered uh, French fries made like that, it was in the French part of Belgium, so they thought it was like still you know, France, obviously, and that food must be must be French. Um, some other stories put uh, put it in uh, in Paris during the French Revolution that people uh, there started frying uh, potatoes. Uh, there's this ongoing debate between uh, people in France and. Uh, Belgium as two invented really French fries. It's, it's, and it's but... a quite fierce debate. And I think, I mean, to be fair, I think in in Belgium, they're, they're much more passionate about the French fries. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think they've applied for UNESCO World Heritage yes. status for the French fries. Yeah. yeah. And in France, I think, you know, they're very, you know, enamored of French fries. But, and that's why one of the things we mentioned in the book is that when there's a whole to do during the Iraq war um, with the freedom fries, as they began to be called in the United States, that the French were not as bothered by that as you would think because they just said well fries are belgian anyway what do we right. care and so. we don't call them french fries we just call them fries yeah <laughs> i mean they're not whatever. known as french fries in france and <laughs> they're like okay you know go on if you want uh so they're much more disturbed about things like pouring you know champagne into the gutters and that was you know sacrilegious but if you want to call them freedom fries you know that's fine go ahead yeah, so. Speaking of champagne, I was surprised to find that there's someone actually named Veuve Clicquot. I didn't know it was an actual historical person. And she played an important role in improving and saving champagne production around the time of Napoleon. Who was she? Well, she, she was, uh, so Clicquot, she was married to um, François Clicquot, who was, uh, who was a big uh, producer of champagne. Uh, at the time of the Napoleonic Wars, and her husband died, so she became the Veuve Clicquot, the widow Clicquot. And uh, her big role in the development of Champagne is, is one of the stories that... Well, she, she was really big in uh, in making Champagne very popular outside of France, and she she's um, she exported Champagne to Prussia, Russia mainly. And, and the story is that uh, after at the end of the Napoleonic War, Unfortunately, Champagne lies kind of on the pathway to go to Paris if you come from the from the east. So obviously, the troops of Prussia and Russia went through the Champagne region and obviously uh, looted, it, looted it and took some Champagne. And many people, uh, Champagne producers, really tried to hide as much Champagne as they could and tried to hide it from, from the invading forces. The legend of her, the, the Veuve Clicquot, is that um, instead of doing that, she was very happy to give Champagne or sell Champagne to the invading forces. Because her idea was that, like, well, they would drink it now for free, maybe, but later on they would pay for it. And sure enough, like uh, after the war, the war ended, uh, 
she was one of the first, she was actually the first person to export huge quantities of uh, champagne back to Prussia and back to Russia mainly, which became like a huge market for for champagne. And, and this made really the fortune again of, uh, of Africa. So that's uh, one of uh, one of the, the stories around her. It's probably like a lot of stories around champagne, very apocryphal, <laughs> but uh, it's it's a very good marketing story for Africa. <laughs> right. So your book appealed to me as someone who loves to eat, um, but you also address more serious questions about food. For example, you argue that what we eat can reveal a lot about the divisions and inequalities that are pervasive in our societies. And you point to the far right in France and how it has used food to define French identity since the 1990s. And you write that by looking at the political and economic and social practices related to food, we can learn a lot about who holds the most power in a society and the values that they prioritize. Um, Could you talk about your observation in terms of recent political developments in France? Sure. And this is actually one of the biggest themes in our book is this use of food as not just a marker of social identity, but the way in which food is used to create social identities and to justify the rule of one social group over another. And this is something you see going all the way back to Roman times, to the medieval era, and especially more recently as well. And the use of food by far-right groups and nationalist groups um, has been especially prominent in the last several decades, but it actually goes back much farther than that. We have a few stories in the book going back to the early 20th century, for example, when you had far-right groups who were agitating against uh, absinthe and other industrial alcohols. You know, they painted this picture of, well, traditional French people drink wine and not these industrial alcohols that are associated with, you know, radicalism and urban decay and all these social ills of society. You had during World War One any kind of restaurant or food business that had any association with, with Germanness um, was vilified and even attacked. So this is not really a new thing, but it's taking on a new manifestation and a new prominence really since the 1990s. And the Front National, the main most popular far-right group in France, has really taken this on board. And so what they kind of advance as a narrative is the idea that there's this traditional French identity and this traditional French culture, and that means that you need to eat like a French person. And traditional French gastronomy needs to be protected from these kind of malign external influences. And this is really kind of a thinly veiled you know, cover for saying that France itself should be protected against these malign external influences. And it's not very subtle. I don't mean to imply that it's subtle. You know, they campaign against uh, kebab shops and halal meat and work-free school menus. And, you know, it's really quite, quite overt. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite, uh, in. Uh, as it, it looks like as soon as the far right takes up one town hall, that's uh, one of the things they're going to do at one point or another is, is stop uh, pork free meals in uh, at the schools, for example, and thereby depriving, like uh, obviously, some uh, some some of the immigrant Muslim population from from uh, from eating eating food there, and just saying like, well, this is France, you eat what French people eat, and uh, and uh, yes, so and they're very upset about like uh, people eating kebab. Uh, though sometimes it seems that they confuse themselves about um, about what people should eat or shouldn't eat. Like recently in. Um, I think a couple of years ago, there was this thing called a Couscous Gate, where uh, the, de- the deputy leader of uh, the Front National uh, picked, posted a picture of himself in Twitter in a uh, restaurant in Strasbourg, and he was eating couscous. So it was a, a restaurant serving couscous, and couscous is this traditional meal from North Africa, from uh, traditionally Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia. It's this kind of stew made with the wheat, and, um, and yes, it's this North African dish. And so a lot of the supporters of the Front National were very upset with him because he was eating couscous. But then he was arguing that uh, it's okay, couscous is a French meal because it was brought back to France from the Pied-Noir. And the Pied-Noir were basically the French colonizers of Algeria, which came back from Algeria after Algeria became independent again. And they had obviously brought back their own kind of food tradition, which they picked up while they were in Algeria for, like, uh, for, for, for generations. And they had brought back two friends, also couscous. So, and uh, the Pinot actually a big, uh, big uh, a group which uh, which 
does support maybe the Fondation more as other groups in France. So, you know, it's it's like a he like basically the rationale was like, no, no, couscous is it's actually French. It's actually okay. And and then it created this big debate within the Front National of is that okay? Is it not okay? You know, so, so they, they confuse themselves really. So, yes. so. Well, it's like you said, the subtext of, of, of what they're saying is to be French, one should eat and drink as French people have always done. Um, but as your book points out again and again, and as your, your story just emphasizes, that French gastronomy is a rich mixture of taste and customs from around the world. Oh, definitely. And I think that, I mean, it's evident in our book from the very first chapter where we talk about uh, the roots of uh, French winemaking in the Roman conquest. Uh, and it's just a, a constant theme throughout the book where you have you know, the Roman influences, you have the Germanic barbarian influences, uh, the Italian influence during the Renaissance, you have the discovery of the American continents and all of the, this enormous food transfer between the New World in the old world, and then going up to the more recent times of French colonialism and imperialism, which brought you know, a whole raft of new foods into France in different ways. And so it's what makes it even more ridiculous when you know some groups are, are, are posit the idea of this kind of monolithic, static French gastronomy, because it has never, ever been static or monolithic. You know, it's constantly absorbing all these foreign influences, um, sometimes from you know, benign uh, encounters, sometimes quite often from war and conquest and globalization and imperialism. And so it's a very kind of fraught subject within France. Um, and But what you tend to see is things, you know, are introduced, uh, maybe they're a bit controversial, but at some point they just become commonplace and people forget that they were ever not French. And so even today, when you look at all the food wars of today, whether it's, you know, people upset about the influence of American fast food culture or, you know, other kinds of food cultures, you know, in a hundred years, people may look back and, you know, not even remember that these things were not very French at all. Well, Jenny and Stefan, I could talk to you all day about this book. I, I just thoroughly enjoyed reading this. Um, I've already incorporated it into my classes. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank, you. <laughs> thank you. Yes. In my French 1002 class, they learn about food, that vocabulary related to food, and I always have them cook things. But I've incorporated your book into uh, presentations where they're going to bring in a cheese or make a dish and then use your research um, to, to talk about the history around it. So I'm super excited to see how that goes. I am, as an academic myself, I am beyond thrilled. <laughs> Thank you. That is just wonderful. Yes, it is, it's amazing. And so I hope everybody checks it out. And thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you very much as well. We've been talking with Jenny Mitchell and Stéphane Hinault about their new book, A Bite-Sized History of France, Gastronomic Tales of Revolution, War, and Enlightenment. Thanks for listening to New Books and History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.